All right. What's up, everyone? This is Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and we are on part four with our series on rethinking the extent of the atonement with Dr. Scott Smith. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the resurrection and its relation to the atonement. So stay tuned for that. Uh, you're going to want to hear this. I think it's really relevant for a lot of the conversations uh, that are happening today in a lot of different circles. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, welcome back. Uh, this is going to be episode uh, number four with Scott Smith on rethinking the extent of the atonement tonight. As I said before, is going to be on the resurrection and its relation to the atonement. Uh, and in, in parentheses, kind of in, in addition to this, it's going to be a discussion about God's wrath. So maybe we can get into that. Maybe we'll do this as a special podcast as, as some future date, uh, which I don't know that we'll have time to delve into all of this tonight, um, like we would hope, but we'll see how far we get and go from there. But let me cut scenes and uh, we'll get Scott in here on the video with us. So Scott, welcome back. Good to have you. Good to be back. Thanks. Part four, man. We've made it. We've gone through three parts <laughs> in, what, a week and a half or so? Yeah, it's about that. Two it's weeks, something like that. Weeks. Yeah, Three parts, two <laughs> weeks. It's been it's been good. I mean, you and I um, have really had a chance to go uh, from a surface level to an in-depth level last week of getting into even the scriptural references. And it seems like we're getting a lot of feedback um, in a lot of the different groups that, that this is being featured and starting some conversations. And I think uh, there's been positive feedback. I think there's been a, a, some challenging feed, challenging feedback as well. And I think you, we've done our best to kind of address some of the tough questions that have come our way. Um, but if you guys, if you watch this in the future, it, it, it just because this is going to be the last part for now in this series, don't hesitate to keep sending those questions in because at some point, um, we, we would like to, if it, if it all works out, to be able to come back to this and uh, readdress or pick up where the conversation left off. So still send us your questions, send us your comments, and uh, um, we'd, we'll, we'll plan on getting to them. And um, even, even on that note, we've had some good positive feedback. Some people have sent us messages saying, hey, you know what, Dr. Scott um, is really challenging my view on the atonement, in particular with some of the, the passages that seem to be um, a universal application, and then some that seem to be a very particular application. Uh, so, Dr. Scott, we really appreciate, um, for me personally, and for those of you who have benefited from this particular series, 
Dr. Scott, we really do appreciate you coming on and taking the time and your busy schedule and life and how 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 fast everything gets to move in sometimes to just take take the time to come on and lay this out for us. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you again for just the opportunity so that to get people thinking. That's that's the main thing is is to get them thinking about the Bible and and looking at the Bible, searching the scriptures to see if what I say is so or not. <laughs> I think that's what, the way we've got to do it. I think that's that's the way it's meant to be. I mean, the scriptures. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a living and breathing document, and I, I I just think that there's it's inexhaustible. So we there's so many different points of view and perspectives, and and even uh, presumptions that we can bring to the text, and and to hear someone else's opinion on something like this particular. Uh, topic it just can challenge your worldview challenge your perspective and uh, for me personally that's done exactly that for me I know for many of you that are watching that's done that for you as well um, and and I think that's where you know iron sharpens iron man I mean we, we can use that and make it make each other better Amen. so all right so here's what we're gonna get into tonight um, we're gonna we're gonna continue to discuss dr. Scott's uh, view on the atonement which it You've labeled and you have coined this term panastasism, which is a transliteration of the Greek terms related to your understanding. Uh, the Bible demonstrating that one of the works uh, of atonement relates to purchasing people out of death. And so all resurrected, quote unquote, is the meaning of the term. Now, for those of you who have been enjoying these last few podcasts, as we mentioned, we're um, we've we've made a mutual agreement. This is going to be the last um, part for this particular series. Uh, we would like to, um, if it all works out, to come back to it and discuss some future topics uh, and kind of maybe go in a little more depth on this particular series if we get to that. But tonight, this is going to end this group of podcasts. So if you missed the last three, make sure that you go back and listen to them. Uh, each one of them kind of piggybacks off of, off of uh, the next. So part one, you get kind of the historical perspective alongside uh, the different views of the atonement and then it, it, there's just so much information there to be a background to leading into panastasism and what this particular view of the atonement is to podcast number two where you get into ver some very specifics on what panastasism is in particular and breaking down this view of the atonement and then part three was we uh, where we got into the scriptural references and really broke that down in each one of these last two episodes. Uh, we've even addressed a lot of the comments and questions that have come in online, and we'll continue to do that in, in this podcast tonight. So Scott's been building the case for his view theologically, historically, and scripturally, answer, answering a lot of those objections and those questions along the way. Now, Scott, for the new listeners, can you, uh, just for the benefit of those who may be coming in to this episode that haven't listened to the first episode, can you summarize for them in a bit more detail, your view on the atonement, which we've been discussing. Okay, sure. Well, I believe that the Bible supports an understanding of Christ's atonement having two distinct aspects, one universal and the other particular. So we're talking about the extent of the atonement here uh, in relation to people. So the universal aspect is that Christ's penal substitutionary atonement is for all people, regardless of whether they have faith or not. And that this aspect of the atonement results in everyone's resurrection. So they're resurrected out from their penalty of sin, which was physical death. And so because of this, it's the most distinctive part of the theory about atonement here. 
And as you noted, I've labeled it pananastasism, meaning all resurrected. And so this is the universal effect and extent of the atonement. But then I believe there's a particular effect and extent only for believers, which involves Christ's blood application to cleanse them from sin and then join them in covenant with God. So this allows them to be in a right relationship with God. And so God accounts their faith as his righteousness, the righteousness that he was expecting from them since he designed them to be like him way back at the beginning in Genesis. And because of this, believers avoid God's wrath, for they will be made righteous at their resurrection. But unbelievers face God's wrath, for they have been sealed into their unrighteousness forever, and so they experience the second death. Okay. And I'll talk more about that uh, sealing in their unrighteousness later on. Good. I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, this is something that uh, this particular topic, for whatever reason, uh, has just captured my attention. I mean, in, in this particular view of the atonement, just it, it, it just ties so many things together. So I'm excited about it. But anyways, we've covered a number of different verses. We've cover, covered a number of different ideas lately. Um, so what are you thinking that we're going to get into more tonight? If you could lay that out for us. Yeah, well, I want to go into some more detailed discussion about uh, the resurrection and uh, the relation to atonement. We've gone through a lot of verses, but there's a lot of verses to cover tonight. And then there's yeah. still a lot of verses that if you read my dissertation, you would find even a way yes. more than what we've covered. I've got to tell you guys, if you have not accessed uh, his dissertation, there, it's just a wealth of information. There's just a, a vast amount of scriptural references in there, as well as um, citations. And it, I mean, you could you could just go off the footnotes alone and spend the rest of your life reading those books um, uh, in, on this particular subject, and you wouldn't have a waste of time there. Um, in, in fact, Dr. Scott, I even said, um, I think that you could even write your own systematic theology based off of this particular <laughs> view. But anyways, I, I won't go too much into that. But um, I, I would like to know, are we going to get into 1 Corinthians 15 at all tonight on this subject? Oh, yes, we will. Not yet. We'll get there in a few minutes. Uh, but first, we want to cover some things from the Old Testament. Okay, good. Well, um, so we're mentioning the Old Testament. We actually we had a comment come in online from one of our, our listeners who, who commented on this particular subject in relation to the atonement. How is the Old Testament pictured in the New Testament application? And it's from, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's... Uh, I'm going to butcher it, so just let me know. I, I mean, correct me. I'm going to, I'm who this is, I'm going to send this to you in a link because um, I'd like to get your take on it. Uh, so just tell me how I'm pronouncing your name if I need to pronounce it right, if I'm not. So we've got Gulam Boanshet, and this is in the Apologetics Academy. He points out, uh, it, he pointed out the Old Testament picture of atonement in Leviticus chapters 15 through 17 as demonstrating a provisional view of atonement. So I'm going to read uh, these point by point, and then I want to see if you, uh, Dr. Scott, if you would reply for each of those. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. I, I do cover Leviticus chapter 16 on pages 180 through 182 of my dissertation. So uh, we can address kind of some of the stuff regarding Leviticus. Awesome. So Gulam says some some important concepts. Number one, provision is made for all Israel and the atonement. That's point number one. And I can agree with that statement, though I would, I'll probably qualify it, as you'll see here in a moment. 
Okay. Uh, well, point number two. Provision is also made for sojourning Gentiles and the atonement. And I agree with that. Uh, but I would add that that includes all the Gentiles that were choosing to dwell in the area of Israel. So they may not have had faith toward God. They may not have been proselytes of Judaism, but they were still to show honor at this holiest time of Israel's uh, year, so to speak, when they were doing the Day of Atonement. Okay. So point number three says the atonement is available to all, but is not applied to all. Right. So here I partially disagree. It, obviously, that, that's a provisionalist type statement of atonement where it's been provided, but it's not applied unless there's factors involved. And and I, I partly agree with that. I mean, part of my atonement theory says the same thing. But it, on the Day of Atonement, uh, rather than just being a provisional idea, there was still some objective aspects in the Day of Atonement that were based purely on the fact that the high priest was doing the work on behalf of this corporate body. So, first of all, the nation uh, stays right with God as a corporate group. That is, the nation as a whole is atoned for. And then sin is removed away from the nation and from God, where he was dwelling in their midst. And that dwelling place of God there, the, the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle, the ark and all the ritual furniture related to that, they were cleansed through the blood application of one of the atonement sacrifices. So there were some things being done there that were objectively, uh, regardless of whether an Israelite was believing or not. I see. Okay, now, um, alongside this third point, um, kind of a sub-point, he says those who did not humble, um, let me put this, those who did not humble themselves were to be cut off from the atonement so that it may be manifestly clear that the atonement is to those who are of faith and not all who are of Jewish blood or under the law. Now, what's your take on that? Well, I agree that individuals were cut off from the nation, not necessarily from the atonement, uh, for lack of humility. Leviticus 23.29 notes that. Uh, this is to demonstrate the importance of faith for not to not be cast away. So in my atonement view, the parallel to Christ's atonement is to not be cast away into the lake of fire after the resurrection's been done. So faith saves uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in this sense here in the Day of Atonement would be the Old Testament and the second death that we were just talking about in the New Testament. I see. So... Before I get to kind of his next sub-point under this, this third point, I want to ask you, um, so is, it seems like are we drawing a distinction between the corporate and the individual aspects of the atonement? I think so. I think that, that that's part of the point, even in Leviticus, is that there are corporate things occurring and there are individual things occurring. And uh, each is doing its own kind of distinct things. I see. Good. I can't wait to get into that a little more. So, okay. Now, um, his second sub point would be those who worked on the day of the atonement were to be cut off from the atonement so that it would be manifestly clear that one does not work for their atonement. What's your take on that? Well, I agree with this also that individuals who were attempting to work instead of resting in the atonement were to be, it says they're to be destroyed. 
in Leviticus 23.30. So the parallel here being that one cannot stand in one's own righteousness, but must be obedient and rest in God's work and the high priest's work in this in the case there, and also in our case of Christ as our high priest. Failure means destruction, which is then paralleling again in the New Testament to the experience of the second death itself within the lake of fire. But both of these points are particular in nature. So we see there is both a particular and a corporate aspect, I think, within the day of atonement work of the high priest. And to me, this fits exactly within my thesis of Christ's work functioning both in a corporate aspect objectively in some ways and particularly in distinct ways towards individuals. Okay. Now, his fourth point is going to be, it's this. He says, the sacrificed goats are two, perhaps a a type of Christ's two natures. He asks a question, are those two goats uh, perhaps a type of Christ's two natures? Though the main point is that... One goat is slain as a sacrifice. The wages of sin is death, and for the sins of Israel, God in love accepts this substitute so that Israel and sojourning Gentiles may be forgiven. And the second, being the scapegoat, has the sins laid on him and is set loose in the wilderness, signifying that God has separated us so far from the sins that he has forgiven as as far as the east is from the west. Okay, so... I agree there's a specific reason for the one goat slain and the other one left alive. And I, I can even agree with some of his parallels of the wages of sin of his death and sins as far as the east is from the west and so forth. I don't think the two goats parallel the two natures of Christ, uh, but rather are needed to help picture the complexity of the work that Christ is doing, uh, specifically in two aspects. The death of the one goat represents the death Israel as a nation deserved for all its sins, but God takes that death, uh, do them, and puts it on the goat whose lot it fell to be the sacrifice. And then the goat's blood also that is sacrificed is used to cleanse the holy place and the tabernacle and the altar and in this way appease God for the fact that all these people's sins are infecting the place where he dwells. And so consider this part of the blood application as cleansing those who uh, humbly partake of it. Then the living goat bears the corporate sins of Israel away and so cleanses them as a nation by removing the sin. And in all this, Israel as a nation functions as a picture, I think, of all humanity. So God created humanity for the purpose to be in right relations with him, just as Israel was to be in their covenant relation with God. And God desired to save Israel from what should be effects of her sins. He desires to save the world from the effects of her sins. But individuals can be cut off from the blessings of the corporate body and, in fact, face further judgment. So this is why, as well, that individual sin sacrifices needed to be made. So there's this Day of Atonement sacrifice, But that's only one part of the whole process. Uh, It's an important one. But Israel had all these other particular sacrifices relating to an individual's relation to God that were not part of the corporate sacrifice here. So I hope that kind of answers some of the points of the relationship to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16 that uh, he's brought up. As long as people are clear when they read the passage that there are things being done corporately, 
regardless of individuals being believers or unbelievers or Jews or Gentiles, but also that there's things being done individually, dependent upon one's willingness to be humble and obedient. I cover a lot of other Old Testament pictures to the atonement in my dissertation. And at, you know, one time I was thinking we might do a podcast on them, and we may still in the future, I don't know. But uh, they all, all the pictures show different ways in how the atonement functions and how they also then fit into my panastasic view of atonement. So we have redemption pictures, we have the Passover picture, have all kinds of other pictures uh, within the Old Testament that help show what it is that Christ's doing. It's because his atonement is functioning in a complex way of which it took all these pictures to try and point out different aspects of how his atonement functions and works within our relationship. So I encourage people to look at my dissertation if they're interested, because there is more information there. But now, uh, if it's okay, I think we should move on to our discussion of resurrection in the Old Testament. No, I'm with you 100% on that. And yes, I, I, I think there's just, I mean, it's, it, it's inexhaustible if you want to look at the typology and, and, and the comparison of the Old Testament to the New Testament, especially within within the atonement itself, there's so much information there. I mean, just look at look at the Book of Hebrews and look at all the commentary on the Book of Hebrews, which which compares the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, um, the Old Covenant to the Better Covenant, even. And and there's just so much entailed there. So um, I would also encourage you go to the dissertation. There's so much information in there, um, and it's it's simplified in such a it's 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 a very complex amount of information that is is broken down into a very simple um, way of understanding it, especially for me, because I, I kind of need it broke down that way. So anyways, yeah, let's move on. Now, the first question that I've got in regard to the resurrection, is it actually discussed um, in much detail in the Old Testament itself? Uh, you know, much detail? Probably not. Uh, it's But it's not absent from the Old Testament either. In fact, what many consider one of the oldest books of the Old Testament, and myself included in considering it one of the oldest books, states something about it. So the book of Job, uh, we find in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Man, I point this out so often to people. It's like the the oldest book in the Bible is is really laying out some pretty Christian doctrines here. Um, so it, to me, it seems pretty clear that Job is referring to seeing God in person, in his flesh, after death. Um, and, and to me, it just seems like he's convinced himself that this is going to happen. Um, but what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think very much so. Uh, he also links resurrection here to a redemptive act, for it's his Redeemer that lives. And and this Redeemer standing at last on the earth implies a bodily form for the Redeemer, so that alludes to the incarnation. And the final day is on the earth earth so he's alluding to the end of the age so this is you know not the first time either that job references an anticipation of the resurrection experience it's just that th this particular part here 
showed a fair bit of parallel detail that like I just went through. And in fact, for those that believe the Bible is the inspired uh, word of God, we find in Job 14 some extremely advanced revelation also. For in the midst of discussing uh, physical death for mankind, he states in Job 14, 12 through 15, verse 12, he says, So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. So notice the timing of Job's understanding of the awakening of people out of death is till the heavens are no more, which matches to when the unbelievers are resurrected according to Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It's when heavens and earth uh, flee from God and he brings people back up out of the dead. Verse 13 goes on. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. So Job is asking God to let him die, but not forget about him. You, you recall, Job kind of just wanted to get all this suffering over with and just, you know, God just kill me off kind of thing in some respects. Uh, but yet he also still was holding out some hope for God as well, so... In verse 14, he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. So Job asks this rhetorical question. Now, there's, most people would be inclined to answer, no, man shall not live again. But the intended answer to the question is yes. As verse 12 already affirmed a time of awakening. And here in verse 14, Job expects a time when his change comes, uh, I believe that's referring to change out of death. And how this will come, he gives that answer in verse 15. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. So God's call is what Job will answer to from the grave because he knows God will desire to not let his handiwork, Job in this case, uh, be left there. So this idea of God calling out from the grave is exactly what Christ says will happen through his own calling regarding the resurrection of all people there in John chapter 5 that we covered uh, a couple nights ago, I think it was. And um, so despite these verses being so precise, there's still even a greater witness to the atonement's function for resurrection in Job chapter 33, verses 14 through 20, which is discussed in detail in Appendix D of, of my dissertation. Uh, specifically for our own discussion here, we're just going to look at verses 23 through 28, where I'm using my own translation of the passage found there in that appendix. So you have any thoughts there, Josh, before I get into this? Yeah, before you get into text? that, I just... I, it's, I, I love the book of Job. I was talking to a guy tonight that, uh, you know, he's going through a pretty tough time in life. And uh, I think, yeah, I mean, there's just so, everyone knows the book of Job is the book you go to um, when you're going through suffering in life. And it, at least to me, it just seems so practical um, to see what Job is going through and, and where his hope is. And I, it, it's just so similar, I think, in my own life uh, to know what our hope is. Uh, that we do have a redeemer. I love the way that he phrases that, that his redeemer lives and someday he's going to see him face to face. Like it, it's just such a powerful message. Yeah. And, and uh, it, I mean, it really does give you some consolation when you're going through a tough time. Um, and gosh, man, you 
compared what what you're going through to something like what Job is going through, and it it's <laughs> it's good, man. You can see his hope and 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 make it your hope uh, based off of what actually happened in the account of the Bible. So, anyways, yeah, Scott, I won't I won't get off on a rabbit trail there, but I love <laughs> the Book of Job. So, yeah, Amen. So in verse 23, we're in Job 33, verse 23 uh, through 25 to begin with. If there be above him, and he's talking, the him is referring to a man first referenced back in verse 12 of the passage. Uh, so this generalized subject of, of the passage is a man, if there be a man. So if there be above him a messenger, a mediator, one out of a thousand, to announce to mankind his uprightness. That he, that's God, is gracious to him, the man, and he, God, declares, deliver him from having gone down into the pit, for I have found an atoning ransom. Fresher shall be his flesh than youth. He will return to the days of his young strength. So we see in verses 23 through 25 that God sends messengers to bring news about how people can be upright and about the fact that God is gracious to deliver people out of the pit the grave, in the sense of the Hebrew term here, uh, because of an atoning ransom that has been found. So this ransom, of course, is later discovered to be Jesus Christ by, by us. But here in Job, it is merely the fact that, there's this, there, that there is a ransom that's going to relate to deliverance from the grave. And in this deliverance, one's flesh will be fresher than youth and his strength as when he was young. So the grace of God... Uh, for the resurrection by the atoning work of God was already known in some level of detail clear back in Job's day. And this matches really the first part of my pananastostic view of atonement. But then what about the uprightness? The part that keeps one from God's wrath. Job covers that next, verses 26 through 28. If he, the man, plead to God, then he, God, will be favorable to him, the man, and he, the man, will see his, God's face, with a shout of joy. And he, God, returns to a man his righteousness. He, God, watches over men, while he, the man, says, I have sinned and have twisted what is right, and it was not appropriate to myself. He, God, will redeem my soul from having passed into the pit, and my life shall see the light. So here we see the conversation, or I mean the conversion, of a person to a believer in God's grace, mercy, and favor, and the man pleading for that and repenting of his sin, which grace, mercy, and favor God grants. And so this man, brought back from death, will see God's face with joy because God returns to man his righteousness. And for this man, he will not only have his soul redeemed from the grave, but his life shall see in the light. So verses 26 through 28 of Job matches in part the points related to the second aspect of the Panastasic view of atonement, that faith is what brings joy and light to the life that's regained from the ransom that God provided. Okay. Awesome. So we've gone through, we've gone through um, the book of Job in reference to the resurrection, what Job's view was. Uh, but my, my question kind of leading out of the book of Job would be, is there any other passages besides uh, the book of Job in the Old Testament that discusses resurrection? 
for me personally, I, I know in my own mind that I look at Daniel 12, 2 as kind of being a reference to a resurrection and what the New Testament would call the just and the unjust, where Daniel 12, 2 um, makes a reference to um, a resurrection to many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. They're going to awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Um, that passage, it's an Old Testament match with the John 5 passage, which you previously discussed, but um, my question to you would be, are there others? Yes, and, and the Daniel 12, 2 passage is a, is a good passage to go to uh, to show Old Testament understanding of resurrection. But uh, there's also references are found in the prayers and praises of Israel, uh, usually where the resurrection is depicted rather than explicitly referred to by name as the resurrection, like the Daniel passage did. And so to quote my dissertation here from page 133, I say, Psalm 22, 29 through 30 speaks of those dying, those who go down to the dust, of which none can keep alive his own soul. And they shall bow before the Lord, but only a seed shall serve the Lord. And then in footnote six, I state the implications are that one, all die, and two, all those that die shall bow before the Lord, and thus three, they must be made alive and receive a body in order to do so. This implication is especially true given that Hebrew thought considered those who were dead to be unable to worship God. So we see that in passages like Psalm 6, 5 and 39 and 88, 11 through 12, uh, Ecclesiastes 9, 5 through 6, and Isaiah 38, 18. And then there's also a distinct seed from this group that will serve God in this state. So I think that that Psalm 22, 29 to 30 is a good place to go. Psalm 33 may be a reference to resurrection. Uh, Psalm 49, 6 through 15 depicts it as well. But the clearest references in the prayers and praises of Israel is in Moses's song. So specifically, Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. So this passage is affirming that God is truly God because he alone can kill and make alive, which is the superlative of wounding and healing, which even people could wound someone and heal someone, but God can kill and make alive. So the order here is also significant. The making alive comes after the killing. So we're not talking about our initial birth uh, into, into human life, although God is over that as well. But he's specifically talking about after having killed, they could be made alive. So this is a clear allusion to resurrection, but it's made more clear when Hannah references this in her prayer as she gives up Samuel for his service to the, to the priests. In 1 Samuel 2.6, and I'm, here I'm using the NASB, uh, it says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol, or New King James would have the grave, and raises up, or brings up, as New King James would say. So she understands Moses's, Moses to be speaking of resurrection out of Sheol. And if one were to look at Psalm 104, 29 through 30, then the two aspects of 
God killing and making alive in order to renew the face of the earth is found. So this same passage from Moses is also quoted by the wicked king Jehoram, son of Ahab, uh, during his interactions when uh, he was being called upon to try and heal a leper. And so the concept of resurrection continued to be a part of Israel's beliefs throughout their generations. I see. So um, I've got a couple of comments. All of these verses would explain why Martha, who would be considered an average Israelite, that she understood that her brother Lazarus, he would rise again in the resurrection at the last day in John eleven twenty four. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it explains her view and understanding at that time, which, especially the, since she says the last day, she's probably thinking of Daniel, the Daniel passage for sure. But um, it also explains why the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead as well, in opposition to the Sadducees, who did not. And, of course, Paul plays off that contention in his interactions, too. So there are other Old Testament evidences of belief in resurrection, but one of the key ones was the Job 33 passage that noted it tied to an atoning sacrifice, which is precisely what my view of the universal aspect of penal substitutionary atonement provides. And I think that'd be a pretty key aspect of, of that particular view when we're talking about the distinctions <laughs> being made here. So, um, all right. So are we getting ready to move on to 1 Corinthians 15 yet? Yes, we can do that. Uh, Take it away. Uh, okay. Even, <laughs> even though the resurrection is discussed more later in the passage, I'm going to start uh, with the beginning verses because I think they're important as well. So... 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also ye, you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So these first two verses establish the fact that the content of the gospel message is the topic and that a true faith in that is needed to be saved, which as our discussion over the last podcast has established, means fully saved in the sense that believers have salvation more especially than the non-believers. So what is the content then of the gospel? And he goes on to describe that. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. So Paul had preached to the once unbelieving Corinthians that Christ died for our sins, his and theirs. And this was the good news. He also preached that this death was a physical death because the result being that he was buried in a grave and that from that death, Christ rose again and was witnessed to be alive by these others. And the passage goes on to note even others that, that are uh, references there. You have any thoughts there about First Corinthians fifteen one through? 5? Um, no, not not so far. Um, I think it's no, not not yet. Like, keep going, and I'll I'll, I'll come up with something. I I promise. <laughs> oh, that's fine. <laughs> I just to me, it's it's important to see that that 
when he was delivering the message to the Corinthians to begin with, he was talking about Christ's uh, payment for them and for their sins, even in the, though they were in their lost state at that time of yeah. his initial uh, giving of the gospel. Now, so, I think that's a good point because so many people, it seems like, uh, I was thinking about this today, you know, when, when we're talking about the atonement and, and what, what the application of the atonement is in, in reference to resurrection, it seems like, it seems like uh, where people would get in trouble is, is if the atonement is what actually saves. So when we, we think about the application of the atonement and whether it's effectual or whether it's just provisional or whether it's uh, something that makes, makes salvation possible, uh, all, all, the, all of these you know, key kind of trigger terms, trigger words even, when it comes to the soteriological aspect of the atonement, um, can be conflated when when we're not when we're missing the point of of what the atonement actually accomplishes, and I think that's that's the key is understanding the atonement itself doesn't bring anyone from death to life. Um, I think that I think that when we're looking at who the atonement is applied to, effectually, it's it's effectually applied to everyone because it affects the resurrection of everyone. Uh, but when we're looking at, at at the particular aspect of of salvation, um, is is the element of faith in in the finished work of Christ and having the imputed righteousness of Christ to you. And and to me, it just seems like that's where where the line has to be drawn on whether or not you're talking about any particular group, whether it's a particularist, if it's a provisionalist, if it's if it's a universalist. It seems like that point right there is is what you're what you're getting at when we're talking about the resurrection and the atonement. So just correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. The, the only thing I would tweak with what you said was, is that, that the atonement does have the objective salvific aspect of taking people out of the resurrection. So resurrection right. is part of the salvation experience. Uh, it's just not the totality of it. And so it's a key yeah. piece of it. And we're going to see even more so how it's a key piece of it here in a second, but uh, but it is not the totality of it. So, but there's got to be a distinction there, and I think yes. that's that's where to me. I, I sent a tweet out to a buddy earlier. Um, we've we've done a couple of debates together, and he's a Calvinist. And I said, "Hey, why don't you take a listen to this and just tell me what you think?" I said, "I think this guy solved." Um, the problem between I think he's kind of reconciled Calvinism with Arminianism. When it comes to the atonement, he goes, well, he'd be the first one to do it in history. So I'm like, yeah, maybe he is. I don't know. I mean, just listen to it and see it. But anyways, um, that was that was his response to it. But it it, it does. It just kind of provides a, a, the missing link between all it. It's just anyways, you know what my take is on it. I'll let you keep yeah. going. Well, and you know my take. I mean, I, I mentioned that in the first podcast. I think it was that I feel like particularists and provisionalists could kind of come together onto this view and each stay in whatever camp they are regarding election, but, but come to a unity about atonement in the, the aspects of it, how they relate universally and particularly. So I think it could be done. So, <laughs> so first Corinthians 15, uh, 12 through 19, there it says, so I've skipped ahead a little bit out of the, the introduction. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Pitiable. So notice how there are two things at stake here at least. Our resurrection is dependent on Christ's resurrection. If, if he did not rise from the dead, then... It is only this life that we have hope, and believers have truly perished. So if you recall, I handled an objection earlier, I think it was in podcast two, where the person had commented that our physical resurrection had nothing to do with salvation. And I claimed quite the opposite. It was foundational for salvation. And I think that's a major part, uh, point in Paul's argument here, is how important Christ's resurrection and Therefore, our resurrection, so the resurrection of the dead in general, is to our salvific issues. But also, um, those who have faith in Christ would have an empty faith if there's no resurrection. For they are not cleansed from their sins, but in fact are still in their sins. And this would be because, of course, Christ needs to function in his high priestly role of cleansing sinners by his blood if they are to be free from their sinful nature. So those two primary aspects of salvation that we have been discussing are at stake. But our focus here, of course, is the fact that anybody's resurrection is dependent upon Christ having been raised. Yeah, so there's two things that I would point out there. The first the first being that you said, um, to kind of start this explanation here, you said that our resurrection is dependent on Christ's resurrection. And uh, then that the very last thing that you just stated, you said, um, the fact that anybody's resurrection is actually dependent on Christ having been raised is, is true also. And I think that's a good point uh, because it, Jesus Christ himself said that he is the resurrection and he is the life. So if if there's a resurrection, then it, it has to be only able to be... <laughs> How am I trying to word this? I'm saying... If anybody's resurrected, it has to be because of Christ's resurrection first, whether it's the just or the unjust, uh, whether it's the condemned, whether it's the living. It, it, whatever category you're going to fall into in the resurrection, it has something to do with Christ's resurrection and the atonement. Um, but my question would be, why is this? So couldn't God have raised up other people um, even if Christ had remained dead? What would your response be on that? Uh, well, before I do that, I want to. You, you mentioned a verse where where it says uh, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Yes. Notice that's two things. So that that <laughs> verse right there fits in with my atonement ah, theory: resurrection hey. and eternal life. Look at that, man! I'm so, contributing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's all over once you start actually have your eyes open to this. You, you'll start reading the Bible and it'll start things will start popping off the page. It's like, wow, wait a minute. This, this matches this aspect. This matches this aspect. Uh, it's great. Anyway, it's amazing. So to go, 
<laughs> so to go back to your your question here uh, about you know if, if Christ, could have Christ remained dead and yet God still yeah. raised us, and this goes back to my premise discussed last week from Romans five that by Christ's payment for every person's death, God was now righteous to raise everyone from death, but Christ's resurrection is is proof that the payment was accepted to God, acceptable to him, you know, that, that there was something there that's like, yeah, okay, this satisfies. And so raising Christ out from death, uh, proved that it, it proved also that God can raise people from the dead by the fact that he raised Christ and into his glorified body and people saw him. And it's proof that God, uh, does what he says he'll do. And as the start of the chapter noted, this this is the good news. So additionally, since Christ did not deserve to remain in death, it would have really been unjust to leave him in it when his eternal person paid the one death for every other person's otherwise eternal death. So thus far, we have first that the gospel witness includes Christ dying for those uh, being preached to the unbelievers he was originally giving the good news uh, to in Corinth. Then we have two, the resurrection of anyone is dependent on Christ's resurrection. And then we get a clear statement in verse 22 that the scope of Christ's work is universal in this regard. So First uh, Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So a man had to pay the price of death, because it was men that sinned, uh, and it was a man that brought death into the world. We discussed this also when we were discussing Romans 5. And it had to be a sinless man, one that, that could rectify the fact that the originally sinless ones failed, and his he, he fell into sin. So this act frees everyone from death or at least allows God to free them justly from his penalty of death. And we've discussed that extensively in the previous podcast. And therefore, all are made alive. Okay. So it, it seems like the popular discussion in relation to the resurrection of, uh, of what, the saved or the lost, for a simple term, um, it, it, it seems like there's two categories, really, that are taken seriously when it comes to the resurrection and uh, the eschaton, if you want to put it that way. Um, and, and one would be to life, one would be to contempt, but you've got one, one category would be the conditional, um, the conditional immortality camp, and then the other would be the eternal conscious torment camp. And one problem that I see when we're talking about the resurrection and we're talking about salvation being one aspect of the resurrection for both the, the just and the unjust, saved and lost people, um, that, that they are resurrected and it's, they are resurrected because of the atonement. So there is an aspect of salvation in that, but it doesn't mean that you're going to go to heaven. So the conditional immortality person, if I'm wording that right, would, would say the, the problem for the, this position is that, that you're even giving life to the unjust or to the non-saved person. Um, so my question to you would be, doesn't the made alive only apply to those who are in Christ as believers? What would your take on that be? Well, there's there's no doubt that at times 
Paul uses the terminology in Christ, that phrase is as a, having kind of a technical meaning of those placed in Christ. But it's been abundantly demonstrated that such a technical meaning is not always intended by Paul's use of the terminology in Christ. And my dissertation notes some of the studies done on this. So the phrasing can have its normal grammatical meaning as well. And where the Greek preposition n, translated in here, can have an instrumental idea. So by Adam or by Christ, just as was set up in the previous verse, in verse 21 and in Romans 5, that notes it was by Adam's transgression and by Christ's obedience. So what is clear from other passages is that all participate in being resurrected. So we know from other scriptures that this is a universal reference here, whether or not Paul is focusing on believers or not in this particular passage. All this is setting up for the fact that as Adam was the head of the race of man in the beginning, Christ will be the head of the race of man in the end, as verse 25 notes. Whether they are in rebellion to him or not, he's going to put his enemies to be subject under his feet. I see. So, so we're approaching the discussion on the resurrected body as we come to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, and this relates a lot to your view on the final destination of the unsaved. Your view is eternal conscious torment based on the idea that Christ paid for the resurrection. And in that, one gains an immortal body. Would that See, because when you get into this conversation with a, the conditional immortality camp, which is, is also called um, the annihilationist, and then you, you see the contrast to that, the eternal conscious torment, the term immortal body is, is tossed around like, well, you cannot have an, an immortal body if it's totally annihilated. So the total annihilationist camp has to prove that the resurrected body for the unjust is not immortal, um, which would mean it cannot be destroyed and, and totally annihilated. So um, how exactly are you relating the resurrected body of the unjust or the unsaved person when it comes to the topic of immortality? Uh. Well, that's the first time well, that I've actually had to make you think yeah, for a minute. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get we'll get into that in a minute. Okay. I think because I think as we get to the latter part of First Corinthians fifteen, that if I understood your question right, I think that'll become more clear. Okay. So, I I believe that they do gain an immortal body. Uh, now, in, in between, before we get to the body stuff, in verses twenty three through twenty four. Um, there's a discussion, I believe, of the resurrection of two groups following Christ's own resurrection, those who are Christ that is coming, and then those who are part of the end group, the last group. And one can find more information on that also in my dissertation, both in the body portion of the text and in Appendix F. But the short idea is that Revelation mentions the first resurrection as an event, and then describes the later end resurrection event before the great right throne judgment. So those of the first resurrection, the second death has no power, according to Revelation 26, whereas those left to be rounded up still are gathered for judgment, Revelation 2013, 
And so verses 23 and 24 of 1 Corinthians 15 are noting these two categories of groups, I believe, that are being raised from the dead and the general temporal ordering of those particular events. Okay. So so as we get into these temporal events, and I may be kind of changing the, the, the subject on you away from the atonement. That's fine. So um, just tell me like, hey, we got to stay on topic here. And we'll come back to that one later. Um, if you want to, but it, it seems to me like when we're, when we get into Revelation 20, verse 6, verse 13, and we're talking about the resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15, we are discussing the nature of, of that resurrected body. And, and I think that that is, that's hugely important when we're, we're trying to understand like, what's this thing going to be like? We know what, we know what John describes it. He, he, he says, I don't know, but he, we know that we're going to be like Christ, but that's one category. Um, but what about the resurrected body when it comes to um, the immortality? It, is that something that we can we can get into here, or do we need to come back to that at a later time in reference no, no. to the saved or lost? I, yeah, I think I think we've reached the point in First Corinthians fifteen where it talks specifically about this. So Paul addresses the nature of the resurrection body in verse thirty five and and following really through the rest of the chapter practically. Uh, he starts out by noting that our current bodies are like seeds for what they will be transformed into. And a seed must die in order to make its transformation. Verses 36 through 38, he discusses that. And he notes the distinctions of various types of bodies, man flesh, animal flesh, the fish, birds, all that are in verse 39. He also talks about some are celestial or heavenly bodies and others are terrestrial earthly bodies. So referring to those stellar bodies, he specifically mentions the sun, moon, and stars in verses 40 and 41. And of those, he specifically emphasizes that each of them has its own form of glory and each differs in its glory. That's important, I think, to understanding what we're going to read about next regarding the resurrection body. So using these word pictures as setups, Paul, he discusses the resurrection body. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 45, so in for, verse 42, so, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So here's our first statement about the incorruptibility of those resurrected from the dead. The statement is general. So it's inclusive of the resurrection of the dead in total, whether to eternal life or to judgment. It is the word that means it is incapable of decaying or wasting away. In short, it can't be made into dust again as our current bodies do and in relation to the condemnation of Adam given in the garden when he was so judged let me stop you. Let, by physical death. Um, sure. Let me stop you there and see if, if I can point out two things. One, you're, you're saying that this is this is a general reference to a general resurrection, which would, would include both categories of the resurrected body. Am I, did I hear you right on that? Yeah, because he just says the resurrection of the dead. That, okay. That's his lead in into this, is that this is what I'm talking about. That's yeah. all of the dead. <laughs> and, the, and the second point that, that Paul made, um, which some, some are going to say is a point that you're making and Paul did not make, 
<laughs> is the the reference to incorruptible. Now, when when Paul says that it's incorruptible, um, what exactly does that mean? Well, I, like I said, it it the word is the idea of of not as we think of of corruption of not being able to decay, not being able to waste away, uh, not being ultimately able to be destroyed. At least you know in the sense that we think of as destroyed. And, it, and it's a pretty, to me, it's a pretty clear statement in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So he's talking about the resurrected body. That's all he's talking about here. He's not talking yeah. about whether it's believers or unbelievers. He's just talking about a resurrected body. That the body is sown in corruption, which is what we have now, and it's raised in incorruption. So that that is the nature of the raised body is incorruption. That's good. That's good. Now, for... For those of you who, who may be watching this that, that would be in the conditional mortality camp, um, you would take the position that, that immortality is only conditional for the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust is, is not immortal. So in, my, my question to you all who may be watching this, um, what would be your take on this in, in reference to the incorruptible, incorruptible body? Um, for a general resurrection based off of 1 Corinthians 15, 42. Send me your comments, send me your questions. I'm going to post this in a, in a few different groups that do take that position, and I'm looking forward to engaging there. But uh, Dr. Scott, I'll let you continue to go there. All right, so he goes on. Paul says in verse 43, It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So there is a glory to the resurrected bodies and a power to them beyond the fleshly body that we now have that sows the seed for this body. Now the glory here is in reference to the new body, not necessarily the person associated to the body. So this is important as some might be led to believe that this is only referencing believers. Uh, but God acknowledges in Philippians 3.19 regarding the enemies of the cross there that their end is both destruction and their glory is in their shame. So we have set up in that passage about how the resurrected bodies of the unbelievers do face some type of destruction, but one that is evidently without corruption, and that the glory they will have is in their shame. So we see similar ideas echoed in Hosea 4.7, Proverbs 3.35, Habakkuk 2.16. We even find glory associated with condemnation in 2 Corinthians 3.7-11, where it talked about the, the law that brought condemnation was also itself glorious. So a resurrection uh, to condemnation does not nullify the glory, power, and incorruptibility of the body gained. Indeed, the power in 1 Corinthians 15.43, is contrasted to weakness, which is a term also used for illness in Scripture. So this resurrected body cannot take ill. There, there is a bodily constitution that persists with it. So this is adding um, a whole new level to the discussion of the resurrected body and what the nature of that, that body is um, in reference to the immortality of this body. So um, I've got a few questions for you before we move on. And uh, the, the first question would be, in, in reference to the shame and the nature of, of, of shame and sin, 
Um, a lot of people would take the position uh, from the eternal conscious torment side that you're, you're suffering an eternal punishment for sins that you committed in this life um, because the one that you've committed this sin against is eternal. And therefore, because you have an immortal, eternal, resurrected body, you have to, under the, the justice and righteousness of God, pay for this sin eternally. But others would, would take it a step further and say, no, there, you are paying for the sins of, of your, your life before you died, but you're continuing to sin. So you're, you're continuing in shame, you're continuing in rebellion against God, and you still don't want to be saved because you hate God and, and take it to that level of, of, of where sin would continue even after death. And, uh, and, and so you've got all of these things compounding on top of each other. But are you saying that all of these things come to those who are resurrected, whether the believer or the unbeliever? Or, um, so that would be one part of the question. But two would be, do you believe that uh, the resurrected body of the unjust would continue to sin, or are they just simply paying for the sins of what they had already committed? Uh, well, yes, I, I, I am saying that Scripture says that this is the nature of the resurrection of the dead, this type of body that they gain. So to answer that aspect, okay. the uh, whether they continue to sin or not is... As, you're, as, as I'll discuss here in a second, to me, what their main problem is, is they are sealed in their sinfulness. Uh, yeah. But, you know, do they have, are they repentant? Sort of like, to some extent, like the rich man was in the rich man Lazarus in, in hell. Although, right. you whether he was really repentant or not is, is unclear. He was certainly wanting to s send someone to help his brothers to not end up where he was at. Yeah. Um, but, uh, or are people continually still, you know, angry at God for all this that he's doing to them? It's, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that scripture is clear about the mental state of those, other than that they're in pain and torment and such. I would think, you know, scripture's clear on that side of things. And it could be that they're, I'll, I'll mention here in a second too, uh, that possibly there, that that's all there is, you know, because yeah. when you're experiencing pain to the level we're talking about, there's, it's like, you can't even focus on anything else just about it's, it's, that's all there is. Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> with you on that. I don't, I don't know of any explicit, passages in scripture that would say that you you continue to sin you know um, right and, and i don't know any any passages that that would explicitly say that you don't continue to sin so i just uh, to me i don't know that i could take a, a dogmatic stance on it i know some people do and um that's that's fine i just don't see it but anyways we'll keep going here i'm, I'm with you i'm not sure that you can say one way or the other so um okay so the next uh, verse it says that they're going to be raised um as a spiritual body okay so they're going to be raised a spiritual body well my question is how is how does that fit into all this yeah 
So the next set of verses, or the, really the final set of verses that that we'll talk about tonight regarding 1 Corinthians 15, uh, talks about this. So it says in verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So here, Paul is still discussing the nature of the resurrected body and goes back to his seed idea that we are sown in our natural body, we are raised in our spiritual body. This is just as true of unbelievers as believers. Christ here, referred to as the last Adam, grants this, grants this body, giving the resurrected a spiritual, and the Greek term is pneumatikos, uh, body characterized in contrast to the psychikos body, the natural or the soulish body, since the word is related to soul, like pneumatikos is related to spirit. I see. So what would this mean in the contrast from the soul to the spirit? Uh, I think it means two things that the body is gained, uh, that, that is being gained, is like other spiritual creatures. So the angels and the demons. There is some type of body that these beings have. They're not omnipresent. They're like God is in his spirit. So there's some localized body that, that these spiritual beings have. Uh, but it's not an earthly type of body. It's, it's a heavenly type of body. And then additionally, second, uh, the distinction between the pneumatikos versus the sukikos, I believe, is related to the indivisible unity of the body to the person. So let me explain that a little bit. Yes, please do. <laughs> when God formed Adam from the dust and breathed into him, I believe that God was joining body to, to spirit and the combination or union of which is technically the soul, so the whole person. Some people will use the technical term of dichotomous to refer to people that believe there are two essential parts to man, uh, the material and the immaterial, as opposed to a trichotomist, typically, who would say that there's a third essential part, which is the soul. So my view relates to these ideas uh, it, it's a view which, when I was in seminary, I'd learned actually had a name. It's kind of a, you know, one of those theological names. It's called a bipartite Unitarian view of man, meaning God intended the two parts to be in and remain in unity with one another. Death separates the immaterial from the material body and so destroys that essential idea of what Adam was when he became a living soul. So the, the union of the two parts. So the resurrected body, I think what this is at least in part describing is that it is not two parts. It is a metamorphosed or transformed version of our spirits to have a spiritual bodily form. 
So the resurrected individual cannot experience death in the way that he did before because there's no separation of parts to do. There's only the spiritual body itself that is a manifestation of his spirit. So just as a, as a seed body of a plant transforms into the new glorious body of the, the plant itself, uh, our natural bodies are planted in the earth but emerge as something much, much more, this spiritual body. I see. So um, I'm not 100%. I've got to, I've, I'm going to have to look at this a little more. I, I just recently had come across uh, that the term, um, was it the bipartite union? Um, see, because I, I believe personally, it, it, and maybe we differ here. I don't know. Maybe oh, I found a spot <laughs> that we actually disagree. I don't know. Maybe we're saying the same thing, but I, I believe that we are a tripartite being um, that, that you have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And, um, and, and, and I, there's a lot of interest, intricacies in, in the division of those three categories, but I, I don't believe that the body and the spirit is what makes up the soul. I believe the soul is separate from the body and the spirit, um, much, much right. like, and that's, you know, that's the standard trichotomist view. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, just, I would, but that's interesting. The, the reason, the reason I believe that it, the soul primarily refers to that idea of the union of these two is, is in part because it says once he breathed into him, they, he became a living soul. But also when you study out the word, the usage of the word soul in the Bible, you're going to see that sometimes it refers to something that's just part of the body. Sometimes right. it refers to something that's just part of the spirit. Sometimes it seems to be talking about just the whole person himself. So the soul idea relates to both of these parts in a very intimate way that I think fits better with the idea of it referring to the union of them. So therefore, it can be used to refer to one part or the other part or the whole whole of. See, and I, this, uh, is, this, is, this is probably um, where I was talking about the intric intricate part of this. I, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the Hebrew term for soul is nefesh. And then um, pneuma would be the Greek term for uh, spirit. But what I what I believe is um, before I, within the element of the spiritual circumcision that that your soul and your body um, are essentially uni unified. They're together. They're one. Uh, but when when you're spiritually circumcised, that they're cut apart. So there there would be a division there between the body and the soul. Which would be the reason why in First John, your body is able to sin, but your soul is not. Uh, which would be a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament doctrine of spiritual circumcision. But um, that's that's why that's part of the reason why um, I think that it, in my opinion, could be confused in in looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, seeing why why they're referenced as one in some places, why they're re re referenced as separate in other places, but. Um, anyways, uh, not to get off on too much of a rabbit trail, but if you want to respond to that, you can, if not, we can move on. Well, I, the only other thing I guess I would say from, from my perspective on, uh, so a lot of people will say that the soul is the seat of our emotions, um, our intellect and stuff. Is that, is that what you believe? Is, um, well, what, what see, is the soul some, in I, your view? 
I think the soul is your essence. It's your being. It's 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 the actual bodily shapes, if you could, of of I guess if you want to say your spiritual body. But I would say it's your soulish body. Um, and and I think that you were you were kind of drawing a distinction between the soul and the spirit, and what you were just referencing a moment ago. But it seems like um, obviously the difference would be you're saying that they're unified in a unity, while I'm saying they're they're not unified. They're distinct much like the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, it, I think that being in the image of God, we can't say that two elements of God is is unified to make up the whole. I, I think that they're they're distinct, but they are one and unified as one. So that's where I would I would compare the image of God to, in, in us that they're three distinct parts but but um, make up the whole. Yeah, I, I know that the the Trinity is often called upon to try and argue yeah. uh, the trichotomy, although <laughs> I think you kind of run into an interesting issue of, well, okay, so which part of the Trinity is which? Because you're basically saying that each one has to represent one part of what we are. And yeah, yeah. that, I have problems with that. Well, it cause... does, because, I mean, you, you see the reference <laughs> to the Father being a spirit. So, it you know, that's where it does become problematic, because if you say right. Jesus is the body, the, the spirit is the spirit and, and the father's the soul well you're gonna have you're gonna have some issues finding references for that and then you get into a, a dualistic nature of christ where where um in his incarnation he would have a body soul and spirit that's um times two so he's got two bodies two spirits two and that becomes a little bit prob- problematic but i just i don't know where to take the whole thing um past that so I've got to look into that a little deeper. That's about as deep as I've gotten. So, well, and and it gets it gets discussed in this passage. You know, what is the the spiritual body? Because it's it's you know he doesn't describe it much beyond the fact that he compares it to the soulish body. Right. So, um, it, it's it, challenging for us yeah. to know exactly what it is that he's referring to. So let's use the um, the bipartite union model, which which is your view, and um, what I would say is based off of all the points that you noted at this last part, and why you believe that the unbelievers will experience eternal conscious torment. How is it that they can experience eternal conscious torment um, if they are found unrighteous in God's sight, uh, based off of um, what we just discussed? Yeah. So. These are qualities of the new spiritual body itself. So the devil and his demons, for which the everlasting fire was originally prepared, according to Matthew 24:41, have indestructible spiritual bodies as well, I would say. And we all, humans, that's all of us, will be made with some similar type of body, all of which, as I argue, was purchased by Christ's sacrifice. So... He made it so that humanity would gain the resurrection out of the penalty of physical death. All humanity gains that. Hence, the universal propitiation in 1 John 2.2 2 and so forth, and the universal aspect of his atoning work. But here is the crux of the problem. So our natural forms include our original human spirits. Now, for believers, the blood of Christ has cleansed our spirits from sin. But for unbelievers, their spirits are not cleansed. 
And so when they're resurrected, their seed is sinful, and they are sealed into their sinfulness just as the devil and his demons were after they sinned. They had no recourse otherwise. Um, they didn't have any re re way of redemption because of the way they were designed, I think, at least in part. And so we humans do have a way of redemption by God's grace, uh, and and. Death is part of that because we discussed, I think, earlier how Romans talks about that um, when we, we die, we are free from sin. It, it is a way right. the spirit is separated from the body, and it's only the for believers, it's only the body that still contains the sinfulness. The spirit's already been regenerated. And so once that separation occurs, now God, we can, God can get rid of the, the sinful body and make of the spirit this new body. But for the one who is still in his sins and isn't, uh, he's still uncleansed, he's still unregenerate, he's still unrighteous. When that spirit is resurrected and they're transformed in that resurrection, then they're going to be, I think, sealed in that sinfulness just as the devil and his, and his demons are. So there's a lot to take in there. Um, there's a lot. There's there's just so much to think about it in, in what you laid out there. And I think even... Um, first Peter kind of breaks that down in what you're talking about when he's, when he says that which is corruptible cannot inherit, um, that which is incorruptible. And I think even when we're talking about a corruptible versus incorruptible, <clears throat> um, inheritance, I, it, it seems to me that there would be kind of a similarity between the inheritance of the Christian and the inheritance of an, a non-believer in the sense that, um, the Christian's going to inherit that which is not corruptible. But, but this, the person without Christ is going to inherit that which is corruptible. So in reference to your body, it's able to be corruptible, but not be destroyed or totally annihilated in the sense that it's totally annihilated. So it can be, it can be corrupt. So I don't know how far to take that, but... but well, um, and, and you got to be careful what you're saying by corruption, because he, said, he just said it's incorruptible, but it still could be sinful. So corruptible in that sense of the body has to do with able to be decayed. Right, just, right. You know, that way. But I think that the spiritual body can still be sinful because the demons ha are sinful, yep. the devil is sinful, That's and good these point. people. See, you might have just saved me there. But <laughs> <laughs> So we discussed earlier tonight, um, just as there's a corporate aspect to the Jewish Day of Atonement, one that did not rest and that was cut off and destroyed. So here, the corporate aspect of Christ's atonement has its effects, which would be resurrection. Um, but if one does not rest in Christ's atonement, then they would be cut off and destroyed. Yeah, and, and it's an eternal destruction because, uh, because of the incorruptible, glorious, powerful spiritual bodies that Christ purchased with his atonement to bring yeah. people out of death and cannot be destroyed in the sense that we think of, I mean, it says that they face everlasting destruction, yeah. but that's the whole point is that there's something everlasting about it. So we know from scripture that they can experience the pain of fire. And we know that they can experience being eaten by worms. At least it's the impression that Christ plainly states. Um, and yet they're not wholly consumed. The word, the worms do not die. They can continue to eat on them forever. Yeah. It is the impression you get. Uh, they can experience darkness. We, I think possibly that when it says the blackness of darkness forever in 2 Peter 2.17 and Jude 13, 
they mentioned that, um, that that may be a blackness that's their own making. That is, they may have their eyes seized shut from the pain and the torment and, and trying in any way to remove themselves from God's eternal in his face presence of his wrath that's against them. That is quite the picture coming up on yeah. Halloween, by the way. And then don't forget that that Second Peter reference, Second Peter 2.17, that's in the same passage where in verse 1 it mentions that those false teachers were bought by the Lord. Only to them, that word Lord there, again, we, we discussed this earlier, is basically the idea of a despot Lord, not a father Lord. They are paid for just as much as you and I are. They, they've been bought. Everyone has. Believer and unbeliever alike, they've been redeemed and purchased out of death by Christ. But what kind of experience do they have after that? Now, the redemptions, that's the good news. Christ has purchased you. He's purchased me. He's per- Whoever you are out there listening to this, he intends to save you from death. He will save you from death. It's going to happen. And he will also save you from your sins and from his wrath against you if you'll just put your faith and trust in him. So, Well, I think that is a good way to end this series. I mean, I was, I was going to ask you that. If, I, I just said series. Sorry, I missed that. Listen, you see that? I said, again? Yes. <laughs> I said series, and Siri is trying to talk to me. Siri, go to sleep. So, sorry about that. Oh, modern technology. But <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, but anyways, man, I, that's a great way to end it. I mean, we're talking about the atonement. We're talking about resurrection. I think that uh, at this point, it should there should be a, so much more clarity um, in, in reference to your view, the panastastic view of the atonement, um, which reconciles those passages that you see where, where Christ has clearly paid for uh, the sins of all people and it's actually been applied, but it doesn't mean that all people are going to go to heaven. And you are answering that question right there. How can Christ pay for the sins of all people, apply it to all people, and yet not all people go to heaven? And it seems to me that out of all of this, this four-part series, it still comes down to the element of faith and uh, responding and having a responsibility to respond to the gospel, which is Christ came, he lived a life fulfilling the law, and he, was, he, he had died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That in its simplest form is the gospel. And if you believe that, my friends, and you actually trust in what Jesus Christ did for you, not only are you going to be resurrected, but you'll be resurrected to life and you'll spend an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think that the message could be any clearer that if you have not given your life to Christ by accepting what he has done for you, then then you're not going to have the resurrection that you want. Um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to that element of faith. So, um, Scott, if you could sum and, it up for us, how would you well, bring it back I don't know if we just, what did you want me to sum up? Oh, I don't <laughs> Let know. Me ask that first. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> okay. just the overall, your your view of the atonement, everything that we've done in this four-part series, if you could sum it up, if you could if you could tie it into the gospel and just leave everyone with one final thought, how would you do that? Yeah, well, for one, to me, the 
as you said, that when you understand this aspect of Christ's atonement, it to me it makes the scriptures so much more clear and so much more logical to to fit it into what is happening and what has Christ actually done for people objectively, but also still keeping all those important things that we uh, evangelical Christians or however you want to label yourself, we who believe in salvation by faith alone, that's still all fully in place with this view. It's it's just you've got to realize what is the faith getting you versus what is Christ's atonement objectively getting you because there's different aspects in the salvation experience that are related to those things. And so to me, that's one of the important things that I want people to think about and, and see regarding that is that that it you don't have to give up a lot of what we hold dear in our doctrine of soteriology and fit this into your scheme to allow for understanding that whoa the resurrection was paid for you know that that yes you have to make some tweaks in some of your theology obviously because otherwise it, it, you would have a different theology but i you can keep what it is that's important to us as as christians as bible believing christians and further make your stance better on scripture because it allows you to read those universal passages universally like they plainly say and yet still keep final salvation for especially for believers as first timothy 4:10 uh, as i've noted that verse quite often and uh i do want to make sure before we depart i want to be able to try and put up a screen share yeah of where to people can reach me Hey, see, I was going to ask you that. I want to make sure that if anyone wants to get in contact uh, with Dr. Schmidt, that you're able to do that. And um, maybe this this doesn't have to be the end of the, the conversation. So make sure that you reach out to him. Uh, it is up on the screen now. Is so, it? Okay, good. Yeah. So there it is. The, uh, I gave my email, which is pananastasism at gmail.com. You can reach me through that email that I've set up for this kind of interaction and I'm working on a website. I, I haven't got very far on it yet. I've just kind of got the, the bones of it. Uh, I need to start filling it with content, but pananastasism.com or pananastasism.org, which will redirect to the.com. And uh, eventually I'm going to start posting uh, articles and things related to my dissertation and related to uh, my view of scripture in supporting this, this view of atonement. Good. Well, and uh, if I can make one suggestion, in your spare time, I think that everybody needs you to start your own podcast and uh, just kind of go through the whole systematic for us and break this <laughs> thing down and spend about the next four years going through every category that you can um, and, and just give us all the... But no, seriously, Scott, I really do appreciate you coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, for me personally, I know it's been a lot of work for you, especially in this busy time of life with uh, being a being a professor and being um, an, an assistant pastor and and just being a husband and all of the different things that you've got going on right now. You've taken the time to do four parts on this series in two weeks, and uh, it's been it's been fun. So I really appreciate it. You're welcome back anytime. Okay, well, thank you.
Uh, also, just I think we should mention again, since I did mention so many places, the fact that you could read my dissertation, you can find that on uh, academia.edu, uh, easiest if you just search for the word panastasism. But uh, Google it too, that probably gets you there also. <laughs> you can get it, yeah. There's, uh, It'll take it right to you. So anyways, um, any final thoughts before we wrap it up and close out tonight? Well, just thank you. Josh, for, for your interest in this, for, for <laughs> taking the initiative to read my dissertation. Uh, it's not exactly light reading uh, or, <laughs> or uh, short reading. So uh, just thank you for that, and thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to come on and discuss this. And, yeah, I'd like to, you know, at some point in the future, get back and discuss some more things. Like I said, uh, maybe some Old Testament pictures related to this, maybe talk more about my view about the wrath of God, yeah, not not being upon Christ on the cross. Um, yeah. yeah, we can get see, into that. Psalm twenty-two, sometime. Yeah, <laughs> see that that you can see why that distinction is important to my view. Because yeah. if the wrath of God is also paid for on the cross, then there would no be no reason for wrath against unbelievers. Yeah, so that's why it's important, I think, to distinguish penalty versus wrath and the legal versus the relational side of things See, as we've gets, discussed in this podcast that gets my brain a turning so i might be thinking about that for our next podcast if we get a chance to do it when <laughs> things slow down so anyways thanks again i really appreciate it and uh, we'll You're stay welcome. in touch so okay all right i'm going to cut to our closing scene and uh, we're going to wrap this up with you guys i want to give you a few announcements before we get rolling here so Anyways, thanks again, guys. That's going to wrap up this series, part four. It's been a four-part series on the extent of the atonement. And uh, we have really been rethinking the extent of the atonement quite uh, in depth with Dr. Scott Smith. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been challenging. I think it's challenged a lot of you guys. We've got a lot of good comments, a lot of challenging comments, a lot of a lot of comments that you know may, may say, you know, this is just not anything to take seriously. But I think it is. Um, I, it, it's definitely been something to consider and if you have questions or comments don't hesitate to send those into us on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or email um, just make it happen you can send me a voicemail on Anchor as well uh, but I do want to tell you this on November 30th we are no October 30th we are um, going to have Jeff Riddle on right after the text and canon conference that he and Robert Trulove are doing on the uh, canonical text, also known as the confessional or ecclesiastical text. So that should be interesting. I think it's going to be a good time. And right after that, in November, on the 17th, we're going to have um, James Snap on, and he, he holds to uh, reasoned eclecticism, um, and that's kind of a counter for the Byzantine majority text uh, platform. So that's going to be a different view than the TR platform. So. That'll be interesting as well. Stay tuned for that. We'll, we'll give you more information as it, as it comes in. Um, but that's definitely going to happen. Then Jonathan Williams is going to come on, uh, I think, the second week of November. And we're going to talk about the gospel and dispensationalism. So stay tuned, guys. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this. And um, I think that's going to be a wrap. So God bless and have a good night. Later. Later.